And then that's when I found Americans for Prosperity. And so that that really was the moment that you decided to, I guess, cross to the other side, right? And to, to go and try and help drive the agenda through through grassroots. I realized that the, the, the power in the relationship, you know, you think about electing people and then they are quote unquote in power, but the real power was in the hands of the people who were calling those offices or sending letters or emails to those offices that were forcing then those offices, those members of Congress who were elected to go to their leaders and say, we've got to do something about this. I can't go home to my district and face these constituents without something to, something to say that we're doing on this issue. And so the real power was not in that room with the speaker, the leader, the whip, and the conference chair and their four chiefs of staff. The power was where it should be in our system of government with the people. Americans are capable of achieving extraordinary things when they have the freedom and opportunity to do so. This is American Potential, and here's your host, Jeff Crank. All right, welcome to another edition of American Potential. This episode, it's a little bit of a milestone for the podcast because this is our 100th episode. This podcast began in February of this year, and we've already done 100 episodes. We launched our first episode, uh, as I said, in February, and we've been able to share inspiring stories of people expanding freedom and opportunity in their communities and lifting up their own lives in the process. Now, from Ginny Berg in Oregon, who worked on a food freedom bill to allow her to sell her baked goods beyond her front porch, to Ali Leggy, who worked on getting universal education savings accounts passed in Florida. So as we were thinking about how to celebrate this milestone and who to have on, it only made sense to have someone who understands the power that grassroots uh, can have and the impact an individual can make. Now, she didn't start out on the grassroots side, but she worked for 12 years in the U.S. House of Representatives. She worked for various House Republican leaders, working for the Speaker's Office and at the House Republican Conference. And I want to welcome Americans for Prosperity's President and Chief Executive Officer, Emily Seidel. Emily, thanks for being on. Thanks for having me, Jeff. I'm excited. Well, listen, congratulations. First all, no, first, congratulations on 100 episodes. Well, thank it's you. incredible. Well, and I want to let people know that this, this whole podcast came about because of your courage, right? We had someone, and it speaks volumes to the kind of organization Americans for Prosperity is, but we uh, brought an idea to you, and it was actually uh, John Quick, who does the marketing for this podcast, okay. and was an engagement director in Alaska, who brought the idea. I said, yeah, we, let's, let's put it together. And we took it to you as the CEO and you had the courage to say, well, you know, let's try it. Let's try something new. And so I want to thank you for that because without you, we wouldn't have this podcast. So thanks to, for, to you. Okay. Well, you guys have done an amazing job and uh, it was an easy yes. Okay. Now um, a couple of things, first of all, you have, why did it take you a hundred episodes to come on? I mean, we've had presidential <laughs> candidates. So did you have to make sure it was a good enough deal or what's the, what's the deal? Oh, you know, I just, I was waiting to be asked. <laughs> 
Fair enough. <laughs> Fair enough. Okay. Sounds good. And you know what? I just found out something today. Uh, Monica did the uh, she did the background on on this podcast, and I just found out we share something in common. I just found out that you once piloted a nuclear submarine off the coast of Florida. I'll bet you my story's kind of similar to yours. I didn't know you'd done that. Tell us about that. Oh, man, you guys really dug deep. Yeah. I, <laughs> when I worked on Capitol Hill, one of the things that um, companies would do and, and also parts of the government would do, take staffers on trips to see the choices that we were we had in terms of what programs to fund through the appropriations bills. And so the Navy took us down to Florida and we did a bunch of different boats, but the, we were on a submarine. They did let us drive it which was a really stupid thing to do. <laughs> I, so I didn't grow up playing video games. And what I learned was that driving a submarine is basically like like playing a video game. There's a red dot and it's on a line and you're supposed to keep the dot in the middle of the line with sort of this joystick controller thing. I was so bad at it. I was convinced we were going to crash into the bottom of the ocean. It was, <laughs> it was a very nerve wracking experience. I would never want to do it again. Yeah, I did the very same thing, and, and it was off the coast of Florida. I'm sure a very similar Navy trip. We weren't on the same one, but uh, got to do that. And, I mean, how spectacular to be able to, to say that you got to do that. that that's really neat, um, did you neat also, opportunity. Did you also do an emergency blow, like in we, the hunt for Red October? Yes, we did. We did. It was amazing. It's, it was and it's, pretty cool. It's incredible being in the sub because you don't like you don't see anything outside. It's just a weird feeling, isn't it? It is. It is. Yeah. Well, listen, tell us a little bit about your background, how you got into politics and why. What, why do you do what you do? Well, it's an interesting story. Um, I got into politics sort of by accident as a college graduate who needed a job and got an internship on Capitol Hill. And uh, I was a very naive 22-year-old who learned a lot about public policymaking and the challenges that are facing our country on the job working for Congress. Um, and, and like you said in the intro, I was there for 12 years before I got the opportunity to come to where I like to say the, the real action is in the grassroots and in the public policy advocacy that actually drives the outcomes on Capitol Hill. Did it scare you at all? Because I look back and it kind of scared me that they actually gave me the authority and power and budget authority over some things in Congress uh, when I was like 23 or 24 years old or something. Looking back, is that a little frightening? A hundred percent. Yes. <laughs> I, I often people say, you know, what's one thing that that that, you know, having been in the back rooms of Congress that that nobody else knows. And I say that like 25 year olds have an incredible amount of power over the country. Which is a terrifying statement now that I'm well past that age. <laughs> yeah. It was kind of fun while you're there. Yeah, very, very much so. Yeah, it was a great, great thing to do. And I think it does really give you such a background to understand how, how it all works. Um, I, let me ask you this. This isn't in the script, but what's, what's one of your most uh, interesting stories from working on the Hill? What, what can you tell us that just like people wouldn't believe? Well, when I worked in the speaker's office, a lot of whenever somebody famous would come, whether it was a foreign dignitary or, or you know, a, a rock star, they would always come to the speaker's office. So I got to see or meet or have my picture taken with a lot of people um, that Clint Eastwood when he came. I was cool. pretty surprised by how much makeup he was wearing, <laughs> uh, which was a little strange. Um, 
But the King of Jordan, this is my most embarrassing story. So the King of Jordan was coming to meet with the speaker and he was walking my, my, for a portion of the time, my desk faced a double door and then the hallway to the speaker's office was right there. So I could see anybody who was walking down the hallway to go into the speaker's actual personal office. And so I knew that the King of Jordan was going to walk down there. So I opened both of the double doors just because I wanted to see him. The sergeant at arms of the house was this very nice man, Mr. Livingood, who was walking, who was leading the procession of all of the of the the king and then and then all of the dignitaries that were around him. And so as he walked by, I'm going to turn for a second. As he walked by, he said he waved like this and smiled at me in the door. (laughs) And but all the people right behind him saw the guy leading the procession turn and wave and so they all started to turn and wave. And eventually it got to the King of Jordan and he turned and waved. And there I was at my desk w- waving at him. And this was after we had been told he's coming. This is a big deal. Don't crowd the hallways, you know, the whole nine yards. And I totally messed it up. And you made this totally big deal out of yourself, huh? I know, right? I was the welcoming committee for the King of Jordan. Uh, yeah, that's 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 a great story. Um, okay, now you worked on the Hill. How did you, when you were there, how did you see the power of grassroots uh, in action? Well, to be honest, I think I can look back at the beginning when I was just answering the mainline phones in the speaker's office and see it then. But I didn't really understand it until towards the end of my career when I was in the, the sort of decision making rooms. So I started I started uh, my Hill career working on um uh, you know, just as an intern in my hometown congressman from Minnesota's office. And so I just answered the phones. I ran papers all over the place. I made copies. I stuffed letters, that kind of thing. My first full-time job was in the speaker's office, and I answered the mainline phones. So if you had a problem and you called the Capitol switchboard, but you didn't know who your member of Congress was, you got transferred to me. So this was my on-the-job learning about all of the problems <laughs> That people in our country were facing, whether it was a regulatory barrier, a healthcare problem, something happening in their local school, uh, they they were talking to me, and I was sitting there thinking, "Gosh, this is a horrible story," but I'm I can't help this person. Congress can't help this person. You know, it was, there were a lot of a lot of big issues that were facing people's in their lives, and and they um and they were calling the government for help, and the government was not the right place to help them. In some cases, it was if it was you know, something that Congress caused through bad policy. But as doing that job, as a part of doing that job, sometimes there would be massive phone bank efforts to call Congress and tell Congress, you know, vote yes or vote no on on this bill. And it was my job to tally those calls as they would come in. And sometimes we would get hundreds of calls a day. And I would share that information with the policy team. And that was it. I did my job. Many, many years later, uh, or I, I guess I should give you a little bit of, of the filler in between. I worked on the House floor for a lot of the time that I worked for the Speaker. And so whatever bills came to the floor were decided on, you know, the, the agenda of Congress when Republicans were in charge was decided on in this, this meeting called the Big Four meeting, which was the Speaker, the Leader, the Whip, and the Conference Chair, and their four Chiefs of Staff. And so I was used to hearing the big four said, we're going to put this on the floor this week, or the big four said, this is how we're going to approach this particular rule for a bill. And then when I went to work for the House Republican Conference, it was very similar. We would host special conference meetings to talk about something because the big four said, hey, we've got to get the conference together and figure out how we're going to address 
you know, whether we should get rid of earmarks, for instance. I remember doing a ton of special conferences around that fight. And so um, and so it wasn't until the end of my career when I was actually in the big four meeting. And this was when I finally realized the power of grassroots and then came came here. So I if you think about all of that, I I had been thinking that there was a plan for for how we tackle all of those issues that I'd started my career hearing people talk about on the phone and that that plan was held and developed in that big four meeting and that any job that I had as I kind of moved around jobs on Capitol Hill for 12 years was executing different pieces of that plan, but I never saw the whole thing. And so when I finally got into the big four meeting for the first time, I was the acting chief of staff for the House Republican Conference because the chief of staff's wife had a baby. So for two weeks, this was the pinnacle of my Hill career. <laughs> and I was in that big four meeting and, um, and I realized what they were reacting to and what they were doing as the big fours, they were driving a, a, an agenda in Congress that was driven by the phone calls into, into various members' offices that were you know, demanding that something be put on the floor, demanding that something be taken off the floor. Uh, they were responding to public polls that were informed by voters and informed by, by people across the country who were saying, we don't like what you're doing on this bill or that bill or on this issue, or we need you to be focused on a specific issue that Congress maybe wasn't focused on at the time. And so I was sitting in that meeting for the first time ever in this big four meeting thinking, oh, I'm going to get to see the full plan. And my first reaction was real disappointment, Jeff. I, 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 was, I was disheartened to see that there wasn't some sort of master plan for how we were going to solve all of these problems that I had come to deeply understand um, in terms of public policy. And, uh, and so I, I found myself daydreaming in the meeting, actually. I probably shouldn't say this out loud, but <laughs> found myself daydreaming in the meeting thinking about my daughter. I'd, you know, during this part of my life, I'd gotten married, I had started a family, and I was taking my daughter and dropping her off at daycare and, the, you know, to be raised by lovely people, but relative strangers to me to go to work on Capitol Hill, thinking that I was making a difference in the future of the country for her. And I found myself really wondering, am I, am I making a difference? What is happening here? What happens if the phone calls into these offices or the, the results of public polls push the big four's agenda in the wrong direction? What happens then? And then yeah. that's when I found Americans for Prosperity. And so that that really was the moment that you decided to, I guess, cross to the other side, right? And to to go yeah. and try and help drive the agenda through through grassroots. I realized that the 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 power in the relationship, you know, you think about electing people and then they are quote unquote in power, but the real power was in the hands of the people who were calling those offices or sending letters or emails to those offices that were forcing then those offices, those members of Congress who were elected to go to their leaders and say, we've got to do something about this. I can't go home to my district and face these constituents without something to, something to say that we're doing on this issue. And so the real power was not in that room with the speaker, the leader, the whip, and the conference chair, and therefore chiefs of staff. The power was where it should be in our system of government with the people. Yeah. And what, a, what a great story. Uh, obviously 
you've seen what AFP can do. And let's take a minute to talk about how AFP, what, what AFP actually does, Americans for Prosperity actually does to connect uh, the, those, those everyday citizens to their elected officials. Let's talk about mm-hmm. that so that people understand why you chose to take this route. Yeah. Well, so go back to what I said at the beginning of my career. I would answer the phones and I would tally how many calls we got on different issues, either for or against. Um, And, you know, to be honest, especially working in the speaker's office, but even when I just worked in a single member's office as an intern, you get, you know, hundreds of calls a day. But the the one the calls that were, you know, the only call you got on that issue, that one was at the bottom of that list. The calls that have hundreds of phone calls or, you know, dozens of people who are calling and are very, very strong and passionate and have facts on their side. Um, those are the ones that got handed to the member or the chief of staff as, hey, here's what our constituents are saying. And so what AFP does is is equip people to have that kind of impact with the time that they're going to invest in public policy advocacy. If you're going to take the time to write your your member of Congress a letter or call them, or show up at at a rally or an event or a town hall, we can make sure that you've got the best possible argument to make for your policy position, and that we can bring all of the voices of the people in your community alongside you so that you're more than just one person. You are a movement that drives change and drives action in, uh, in the legislature. Yeah, and really it's about making a difference in people's lives. It's about removing those government-imposed barriers. Right. Um, let's talk about what are some of the biggest changes that you've seen made because of grassroots activism and because ordinary, everyday Americans connected with with their government uh, through this grassroots effort. What's some of the biggest changes you've seen? Well, I know you've talked about a lot of them on your show. One of the ones that I think has been really big over the past couple of years since the since the COVID pandemic it are the 60 or more healthcare changes that have happened in states across the country. Um, you know, I, on their own, they might not be that big of a deal, but you look at them in total. And to me, COVID and and things like, you know, telehealth, People were stuck in their houses. They couldn't go to see the doctor, but they had, you know, a sinus infection or something like that. They wanted to to be able to talk to their doctor and get a prescription. States that had ridiculous regulations against telehealth temporarily suspended those regulations. And and then when after that period of suspension was over, the people said, well, why can't I just do this all of the time? Why does government have to regulate whether I can call my doctor and have a video conference with them and, and tell them about my problems from that and scope of practice reforms and certificate of need reforms and on down the line across the country. There's just been this wave of healthcare reforms driven by common sense uh, approaches to to healthcare. But what I think gets lost is that the advocacy that people brought to the table to drive these kinds of reforms uh, changed the way that people engage in the issue of healthcare overall. It's no longer just about, you know, whether I have an insurance card in my pocket and how I pay for healthcare. It's about, can I access the kind of healthcare that I want as an individual 
Is it is it of a, the requisite quality to be able to keep me healthy when I need it? Um, and that to me is is just an unlock for the ability to to have even greater conversation about healthcare reforms in the future. Uh, I'd also point to occupational licensing. Again, something that is kind of a, a very specific issue that a lot of people, frankly, are unfamiliar with. But it occupational licensing advocacy across the country helped people to see the absurdity of government regulation in their lives. And then that is an unlock to say, well, where else is government putting up barriers to me being able to live my American dream or for my neighbor to be able to pursue their American dream? And then that is an opening to participate in more and more pieces of public policy advocacy. So I think about those two in particular, not just as important in their own right and really changing the lives of people across the country, but also as a as a way to to come into a broader policy conversation about the role of government and the barriers that it puts up across a number of different policy issue areas. Well, and you, you talked about healthcare. And everything you mentioned was a government-imposed barrier, whether it's certificate of need or, you know, rules around telehealth, those sorts of things. You talked about licensing. Those are obviously government barriers that the government puts up and and prevents people from reaching their potential. Um, You know, one that that, uh, this last year we've seen a lot of great movement on is education and and, um, those government barriers of saying, hey, because you're in this zip code, we're going to lock you as a kid to going to this school. And we've seen that revolution happen because of the grassroots and the power of the grassroots rising up. Uh, your thoughts on that? Absolutely. And that's that's even continuing. I mean, again, I'm a parent. I During COVID, I sat in a room where I could hear my kids on their computers having school uh, remotely for a significant period of time. And the teacher's and my, and at least in my kids' school, we were very blessed that they did a, a great job trying to manage the classroom of, at the time, third and fifth graders uh, <laughs> on, on, on computers. It was a difficult, difficult task. But I also learned a lot more about my kids' schooling than I knew previously. For a lot of parents across the country, they had that experience. And uh, it made them really question whether their kids were getting the the type of education that was that was right for them. I could hear kids engaging the teacher in multiple different ways, totally different than my child. And I could hear, you know, it, it, all of a sudden the, the concept of individualized education really clicked for me. I'm speaking personally. And I think it clicked for, for millions of parents out there. And that's why there's just been this wave of openness across the country to pursue different types of education depending on what your child needs. But government was standing in the way of that by saying, no, you live here. This is the school you go to. And changing that has been uh, an enormous, enormous undertaking by a number of different groups out there. Americans for Prosperity has been on the ground driving much of it. And, um, and you know, I think that future generations are going to look back at this time and recognize that it was a real inflection point in changing the way that people discover and develop their innate gifts and then contribute to society through education. Yeah. And I think there will be States that aren't making change for whatever reason right now that will look back on this time and say, we should have, they'll be left behind the States that are not going to make these reforms and, and really empower citizens to make those decisions and parents to make those decisions. They're going to be left behind and they're going to have 
less uh, successful uh, kids and less successful education system in their state because they're choosing not to make those reforms. So hope that or they'll, they'll have or they'll have fewer families living in their states eventually because people will move. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. That's exactly right. You know, AFP does a lot of grassroots stuff, but one of those things that they do a lot of is knocking on doors and talking mm-hmm. with folks. What issues are people really saying that lawmakers should be focused on right now? What are we hearing on the doors? You know, it's incredible. We have been knocking on the doors or calling the homes of about 5 million Americans across the country so far this year to hear from them what issues are are front of mind and what they're looking for for the future of the country. And by far, most of those conversations, well over 55% actually of those conversations, are about the economy and inflation. This is the universal pain point that is hitting everybody in this country, whether it's at the gas stations or the grocery stores or buying their kids back to school clothes and school supplies. It is hitting everybody really, really hard. And uh, frankly, most people have just focused on that issue or focused on that issue. And then in the same breath said, we can't afford, you know, they're looking forward to the next election because they know that they can't afford four more years of these kinds of policies. Yeah. uh, And inflation is the biggest government imposed barrier of them all. It is caused by too much spending. It's caused by government uh, inflation. And, you know, there's this common theme of these these bad decisions that government makes and this the terrible impact that they have on people's lives. And, And that's what we're hearing. What are people saying about the type of leadership that they're looking for moving forward in America? Well, they're looking for somebody who's actually going to do something to to bring them some relief. And so you just touched on government spending. They're looking for le- for leaders in this country, whether it's at the White House or in Congress or at their st- in their state governments, who are going to rein in unnecessary government spending, who are going to unleash our economy to grow through uh, getting rid of some of these burdensome regulations, these government-imposed barriers that we've been talking about, uh, and and then uh, as a big part of their pain right now is connected to energy, the cost of home heating oil, the cost of electricity, the cost of gas in their gas tanks. They're looking for somebody who's going to unleash energy abundance in this country. Those are the three biggest things that we're hearing about. Yeah, boy, you talk about energy, another government imposed barrier, right? These are, these are solutions. America was energy independent just a few years ago. Uh, and now we've, we've, the government has tightened it so much, you know, oil and gas development around the country and, and, uh, so many rules and regulations that, that this is the American people are paying the price for this bad government, uh, decision on energy. What Americans for Prosperity not only goes out and interacts with citizens at the door, but we also have a, a policy team and a government affairs team that that works with policy champions in the Congress and in the state mm-hmm. legislatures to try and implement some of these great solutions and get government out of the way. These the, get some of these government barriers out of the way. Uh, what are some of the things that we're working on right now? as solutions to to help with inflation and the economy? Well, we were just talking about energy. In the United States Congress, in the House of Representatives, the House passed H.R. 1, which is a comprehensive energy bill that would lower gas prices and home heating oil prices and electricity prices 
and be a great first step to starting to, to address the problem of inflation. We're working to advocate for that bill to get it on the floor of the Senate. It's unlikely to happen, but these are the sorts of things that we need to make sure people are thinking about. There are solutions out there. There, there are members of Congress, to your point, policy champions who are willing to, to stick their necks out, advocate for them, vote for them, put them on the floor, get them through committee, we need more of those types of policy champions in a position to make that kind of a difference. And so whether that's taking somebody from not being engaged on an, you know, an elected official who's not engaged on the issue right now and moving them to be engaged on the issue and advocating for something. There are a lot of, of senators right now who right now we think should be pushing for H.R. 1 to come to a vote in the Senate. And so advocating to those senators to, to take that position and rally their colleagues to do the same is one piece of that puzzle. But also, you know, looking to to work with potential policy champions in the future and advocating for better leaders uh, after 2024, after 2026 and beyond. I mean, that's the beauty of Americans for Prosperity. We, uh, we don't go away ever. We're here in between election cycles and during election cycles and after election cycles to make sure that elected officials uh, do the right thing. We're trying to make good policy, good politics. And of course, Americans for Prosperity can't do this work without people, without people uh, joining in this effort, volunteering their time, getting involved, taking action. How do you, when, when you go around and travel the country, how do you tell folks the best way to get involved with Americans for Prosperity in changing their government? Well, the best way to get involved is to sign up uh, with your local uh, state chapter. We've got state chapters all across the country, 36 official state chapters. We've got activists in all 50 states. If you want to get engaged in a local issue, in a state level issue, or in a federal issue, We've got a way to plug you in and and help amplify your voice. And so if you just go to AmericansForProsperity.org, you can sign up. Somebody will reach out to you and we'll get you plugged in wherever, whatever issue is most important to you. We can get you focused on that issue to start and then see where it goes from there. But the what we want to do is develop a relationship with people who want to be change makers in our country. And, and you, you said it yourself. What we do is 100% based on the activists. When our government affairs team goes to lobby a, uh, a member of Congress, they go to represent the activists in that, in that lawmaker's district or state. And so we are uh, an activist community, and if anyone wants to join us, we would love to have you. Well, and Americans for Prosperity, such a such a great name all across America, and it uh, with policy champions, you know, we we reach out, and they're always willing to come on because onto this podcast because it's Americans for Prosperity's podcast, and you know whether it's it's a it's a great policy champion at the federal level or at the state level, they're just so excited to be a part of some of the some of the things that we're doing and some of the things that citizens are joining us to do. So uh, appreciate that. Uh, Emily, I assume it's not going to be another hundred episodes before the next time that you come on. Is that, is that right? If you invite me, Jeff, I'll Listen, be here. We've removed, we talked about barriers and removing barriers. We have removed that barrier altogether. Okay. Okay. I promise you, you are always welcome on the podcast. Thank um, you. And, and we just thank you for all your leadership and all the great 
work that you're doing as well. Well, thank you so much for having me, Jeff. All right, great. Listen, Americans for Prosperity, it's just been such an honor over the last many months since February, really, to tell this story, over a hundred stories of Americans for Prosperity activists. And, you know, to me, I have people come up and they'll say, oh, what a great podcast. It's the stories that are great. It's it's the, the actual stories of people changing lives, changing policy, and it, it's it's the great people that work and volunteer with Americans for Prosperity that makes all of this possible. So thanks for uh, listening to us. Remember, liberty and freedom, they're easily taken for granted. Do not take them for granted. Go out there, defend freedom, defend liberty. Thanks for joining us. Thank you for listening to American Potential. You may listen to more stories from Americans working every day to expand freedom and opportunity in their communities by visiting AmericanPotential.com.